Welcome to the Wolverine, a variety show of epic proportions. Now here's your host, Jamesy. Welcome to the Wolverine episode two, the songwriting episode. We are going to dive deep into the subject of songwriting today and specifically songwriting influences and inspiration. So let's get rolling. I reached out recently to Calgary, Alberta-based singer, songwriter, podcast host, Brian Pearson, and here's what he had to say about his songwriting influences. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. I produce a podcast called The Mystic Cave. I'm a writer, musician, singer, and uh, songwriter. And when I think about the influences of my songwriting... Of course, at least for my generation, you cannot not mention Bob Dylan, who sort of invented the genre for the modern world of the singer-songwriter. But you remove Bob's music from his lyrics and uh, read his lyrics as poetry, and what you get is a lot of doggerel often. So he wasn't, he wasn't my model for, uh, for my lyrics. I would say Leonard Cohen certainly was, because you can remove his music uh, from uh, his songs, and you can read his lyrics as poetry, and it is very and it's engaging poetry. But conversely to Bob Dylan, uh, you remove the lyrics, and often his songs really just sound like one big drone. So uh, for me, I was always looking for who does both, who does the lyrics, and the music, both inventively and especially when it comes to the lyrics uh, intelligently. I used to find, well, still do, James Taylor as an intelligent songwriter. Mary Chapin Carpenter were the very same. You listen to the lyrics and you realize there's something going on in their brilliant minds that they want the lines to have a resonation, you know, line to line. They may rhyme, they may not, but there's something, there's almost like a subtext because their lyrics are uh, so good. When I think of people who are inventive musically, uh, and both Mary Chapin Carpenter and James Taylor are, but I think of Mark Knopfler. I think... uh, the brilliance, like the music just pours out of the man. So the music is consistently interesting, as it is also with Ry Cooter. I go to Ry Cooter all the time for someone who's, he just can't stop the music and he's restless. So it always is changing, the genres that he's experimenting with or revisiting. But Mark Knopfler has it all together because he can do the rock, he can do uh, something way more folky and almost Celtic and everything in between, and his lyrics are always fabulous. So you go back to a song like Romeo, uh, it, you, you just, it breaks your heart every time you hear the song. So these are all important influences. But when I think of somebody, when I heard his songs, I realized that's what I want to do. And that's Jesse Winchester. Jesse Winchester is the songwriter's songwriter. Everything he writes is intelligent, it's lyrical, musically brilliant, and I think his best album uh, was Gentlemen of Leisure. And it had been about 11 years since his album that he released prior to that. And and it's one of those albums you think, yeah, but the wait was worth it. Every single song is worth listening to. It takes you to a place, and he's in and out in three and a half, four minutes. 
So Jesse Winchester would be my pick of the songwriter who I most would want to emulate. The Wolverine Songwriting Episode. Thanks to Brian Pearson for his thoughts on songwriting coming to us all the way from Calgary, Alberta. You can check out Brian's podcast, The Mystic Cave, and his music at brianepearson.ca. Pearson is spelled P-E-A-R-S-O-N. Now, this wouldn't be a proper podcast episode on the theme of songwriting if we didn't interview one of the Beatles, specifically someone from the Lennon-McCartney tandem. We reached out to Sir Paul McCartney, but he did not return any of our 57 phone calls. Uh, It just seems ever since Macca was knighted, he's impossible to reach. John Lennon, of course, left us abruptly and tragically in 1980, but we were able to secure a phone interview with the ghost of John Lennon. Our own field reporter, Dwayne Anamikwan, has that for you now. Dwayne, over to you. All right, well, it's been a long time since I've had a good chat with my buddy John. Uh, Mr. John Lennon, are you there? Hello, Dwayne. It's been a long time. Yeah, well, Happy New Year, John. First of all, I haven't talked to you since last year. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year to you, too. And, you know, I've written 107 more versions of Imagine since last we spoke. I kind of imagine that you would have come up with more versions of Imagine since the last time we spoke. Yes, good good pun, Dwayne. <laughs> You've been working on that all day, haven't you? You know what? No, I've been working on it since the last time we spoke, John. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> You're on a different plane than I am. I, uh, you know what? Today, John, is Elvis Presley's uh, birthday. Or actually, yes. no, El- Elvis Presley's death day. Did, did they celebrate that up there? Uh, yes, I've been celebrating it with him, actually. Uh, we've been having having a few uh, pops, you know, wobbly pops, uh, him and I. And uh, he's been eating some some roast beef and peanut butter sandwiches to celebrate. Yeah, I was going to say, peanut butter and bananas was his sandwich. Did you have one? No, I won't touch the crap. <laughs> you were tuned in to The Wolverine because you were just that damn cool the next canadian singer songwriter we are hearing from today is parksville bc based tony horler here is tony with his take on songwriting three questions here starting with the first is what inspires me as a songwriter well i would have to start off by saying people and their relationships there seems to be endless material uh in that area um it, it's a complete influence in that uh, people and experiences um, drive my lyrics, and I find that to be the most interesting. Second question is, what songwriter was my first uh, influence or my biggest influence? Well, I think your first influence is always the major one, and for me that's the uh, great Canadian songwriter Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, I always found his imagery, his lyrics, his wonderful melodies uh, definitely kind of place first with me. Uh, I was inspired by what he sang about. Um, I would have to give a tip of the hat to a few others, uh, Bruce Coburn definitely being one of them, uh, Lyle Lovett, whose wry lyrics always inspired me to write in a similar vein, and one of the really truly great songwriters is Tom Waits. Um, these people evolved my songwriting interests, and uh, I like all of them as being major influences. 
I think the last question in this series was what single lyric really inspires me or is my favorite. Um, there's lots of them. I admire well-written songs. Um, and uh, I would have to go in this case with another Canadian songwriter, Leonard Cohen, and his wonderful song, Joan of Arc, when he talks about the burning of Joan. And he uses the lyric, high above the wedding guests, he spread the ashes of her lovely wedding dress. And um, I don't think it gets any better than that. Um, Leonard was a genius. Uh, I can't say really he was an influence. He was just an inspiration. Uh, lots of people say that uh, song lyrics without the music are just bad poetry. Well, all the people I've mentioned today, if you take the music away from their lyrics, they're still poetry. The Wolverine Songwriting Episode. We now turn to Victoria, B.C.-based singer-songwriter Rebecca Books, who reveals her primary songwriting influence. Rebecca submitted her contribution via email, so I will read her statement on her behalf. Rebecca says, quote, The songwriter who has influenced me the most is Michelle Branch. She was a big part of the revolution of Girls With Guitars, and that played an important role in how I got started. She wrote songs that sounded like life, and she made me want to write about my life. Michelle Branch was the one who showed me how to do it, to pick up the guitar and write what you know. That's Victoria B.C. singer-songwriter Rebecca Books with her thoughts on her biggest influence as a songwriter, Michelle Branch. We are going to take a little detour here for a moment for a somewhat political PSA from our own WVRN in-house announcer, Al Demet. Here's Al with his thoughts on a certain bridge over troubled water. For those that live in British Columbia, you have probably heard of the controversy concerning the George Massey Tunnel. It opened on May 23, 1959 as the Dees Tunnel at a cost of $16.6 million. It's a four-lane divided highway under the south arm of the Fraser River joining the city of Richmond to the north and to the city of Delta to the south. It was renamed the George Massey Tunnel in 1967 after a local politician. Fast forward to 2013 when the Liberal government under Christy Clark announced the construction of a new 10-lane bridge to replace the aging tunnel will begin in 2017. With the environmental assessment done, approved, and a pre-construction cost was done to the tune of $100 million, the official groundbreaking took place in April of 2017. Now, in July 2017, the NDP was elected as the new provincial government. You can probably guess where this is going. Well, you're right. The project was scrapped. John Horgan, with the approval of the Metro Vancouver mayors, stepped up to the plate and announced, I don't like this 10-lane bridge idea. I'm going to build you a brand new 8-lane tunnel. Dig deep, folks. After spending $100 million pre-construction costs for the bridge, we, the taxpayer, will be on the hook again. More consultations, more environmental studies, assessments, and on and on for the next three and a half years until construction starts in 2025. How much more costs will be involved 
until the shovel hits the ground. 100, 200 million, more? The new tunnel itself is projected to cost 4.15 billion and to be completed in 2030. And when can anyone remember a government project coming in on budget? Nobody is suggesting that the aging Massey Tunnel doesn't have to be replaced. There will always be disagreements on what is best, tunnel or bridge. But the needless amount of money wasted because two political parties can't agree on anything is absolutely ludicrous. This is only one of the reasons we are the most heavily taxed province in Canada. Where do you think the money could be better spent? Healthcare? Policing? Homelessness? My name is Al Demet at the Wolverine, and that is my rant for the day. Thanks for that, Al. Now it's time to take our WVRN songwriting episode to Edmonton, Alberta, where singer-songwriter Terry Lawson is standing by. For me, songwriting really is a challenge in that it takes me forever to put together the words for a song. So to speed up that process, what I've found is that it helps to choose subjects that are important to me, like the feelings I have for the land and nature and relationships. With my words, I try to remind people of the beauty of our world by giving them a sense of what it's like to, let's say, stand on the prairie grasslands surrounded by silence and a big sky, or being high in the mountains looking out at the emerald green of a glacial lake, or just the joy of being surrounded by the love of friends and family. I guess my writing is basically an expression of who I am and how wonderful it is to be alive. I've been a follower of Bruce Coburn since my university days, over, well, 50 years ago. And uh, his words are so poetic, and they really speak to me. And what I love about him is he's not afraid to express his feelings about any global issue, whether it be the cutting down of the rainforests, uh, the political strife of the people in Central America, the greed and corruption of those in power, and the hardships the Indigenous people have had to endure. And on the other side, he writes about the beauty of our world and how special it is. And it's all sung powerfully with the backdrop of his amazing guitar playing. My favorite lyric that Bruce has written is, Life takes its toll, but in my soul I'm still on a roll. And this is significant for me in that even though I'm now an old guy and have come down that long road of life with its ups and downs, I'm still living life to the fullest. WVRN, The Wolverine. I should also mention that both Tony Horler and Terry Lawson are multi-instrumentalist members of the Garage Band Cooperative, who have just released a brand new album titled Two Wheel Drive. Bringing our journey back to British Columbia, it's time to hear what Nanaimo-based singer-songwriter David Hallam of Hallam Highwater has to say about his songwriting influences. Hello, I'm David Hallam from Hallam Highwater, and I'm looking at the question, what inspires me as a songwriter? My take on songwriting is that the song chooses you, you don't choose it, so I'm not sure I'm ever inspired, uh, but I do get excited when one starts to arrive. 
and try to write it down as faithfully and truly as I can. That's about it. Easily my biggest influence as a songwriter is Bob Dylan. There is, in my opinion, nobody else who can cover the modern world from the perspective of the ancient world, a world that was, in my opinion, a far better one than the one we're in. So for me, the ultimate songwriter is Bob Dylan, closely followed by Leonard Cohen. Easily my favorite uh, line from a song is also Dylan. Uh, It's from Visions of Johanna, and it's the first line. Ain't it just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet? The Wolverine Songwriting Episode Our final guest of the day is an Irish-Canadian singer-songwriter and painter who was a co-founder, primary songwriter, and lead vocalist for the legendary Irish Rovers. This is my interview with the one and only Will Miller. Are you reading up? <laughs> wow, we get a live performance too from the one and only Will Miller, who is here with us in the studio. Will Miller of the legendary Irish Rovers and a uh, a very fine artist as well. So let's talk about, first of all, um, of course, nothing will ever replace your connection to your native Ireland, um, but you've made your home and created your art and music here on Vancouver Island in the Gulf Islands for more than a couple of decades now. What is it about this place that inspires your work? Well, James, you know, I've just come back from Ireland. I go home to Ireland every year, and every time I go there, it's changing so dramatically so that the old songs the Irish Rovers sang and all the paintings I knew nowadays reflect an Ireland that doesn't exist anymore. Everybody's on mobile phones. Uh, my my local bar, my local pub that I love, uh, I went in there to see my old mate. He was gone, and there was a Russian a Russian girl behind the bar who couldn't speak a bloody word of English. I say, the old Ireland is gone, and the traffic is deadly. So I must admit that this is my home now, like I say, you've 20 years. I love Vancouver Island, and I, I hopefully will never live anywhere else. What is the difference between art and music for you in terms of where your mind goes when you're doing it? Well, the, the thing about the music was, because you were on stage, you had a live audience with you, you were pumping it out with my art... It's my perfect meditation. If there's anybody who is overactive and wants to relax, get a bit of paper, get a piece of canvas, paint a picture. Whenever I paint one of my Irish paintings, which a lot of my subjects are of an old Ireland, I'm in there. I'm on that street. I'm riding that horse and cart down the, the old streets. It's like perfect meditation. I say, I'll go and paint for about an hour, and I look at my watch, five hours has gone by. So to me, um, I, I didn't start it as a commercial thing, but lo and behold, I sell quite a few paintings nowadays. In the late 60s and early 70s, when the buzz uh, really started to build for the Irish Rovers, uh, for the musicians out there who haven't experienced it at that level or who may never experience it, what was that experience like? It was essentially like some kind of Beatlemania. James, it was like winning the bloody lottery. One day we were... We we went down to California, which was probably pretty smart. We had an old beat-up car, and we ended up auditioning at the Purple Onion and the Hungry Eye, and we ended up playing in both those clubs, which were kind of 
the Purple Eye was known as the Purple Eye was known as the Discovery Club because the Smothers Brothers, Phyllis Diller, Kingston Trio all started in there. So that to me was Mecca. And I urged the boys to come down with me. We went and got an addition. They booked us in there for a week. And we, a year later, we were still in there at the Purple Onion. And that was where we found Decca, or Decca found us. And Decca became MCA Records. But when they wanted an Irish pub album, they came to me and they said, well, we'll put an Irish pub album for you guys, just drinking songs. But the, the producer, Bud... Charles Bud Dant, famous old California producer, said, have you got anything else we could put on here just for it to be different? I, I sang him the Unicorn song. He said, put that on. Glenn Campbell came into the studio and played lead guitar on that song. And lo and behold, that song went right in Canada to number one, and it was on the top ten. There was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and there's these bloody Irish Rovers pumping out green alligators and long neck geese. Who would have dreamt about it? <laughs> I dreamt about it, but that's about all. And lo and behold, we were moved from the old folk clubs to Carnegie Hall. We were playing on big stages all over the world. So it was a dream come true for young men, there's no doubt about it. Such an amazing journey that you've had uh, and continue to have. What advice do you have for aspiring, emerging Canadian musicians? You know, I'm, I'm smiling at that question because my old friend Derek Bell, who was the harp player of the Chieftains, was asked that was asked that question by a BB, a very pompous BBC interviewer, and said, uh, "Derek, what, what advice have you got for young aspiring musicians?" And old Derek was as mad as a hatter. He says, "Well, tell him not to eat more than one egg a day." <laughs> Whatever that meant, I don't know. But that was a famous line. My. My, inf- my my ideas is that you got to pay your dues. I don't care if you're a welder like my son. He spent a lot of years learning the trade, and now he's a top welder. Very, very few. There are, there are a few people. Every young kid nowadays wants to be, in quotations, a star. Mm-hmm. But very few of them ever will be. And you just got to go out there and play. You got to get gigs make a few bucks like the Rovers did for the first four years. We were making like a hundred bucks a week (laughs) and uh, we played in every dive in the world. But you know what? It was a great life for a young man. And when you're young, don't think of big stardom right off the bat. Go serve your time. Learn your guitar. Learn your instrument. Learn your piano and, and brush it all up. And there's very few child prodigies out there. It's only hard work that gets you there. So play on, but have fun. Great advice. I'm going to name a song, and uh, you tell me a highlight or a short story about the song that people may or may not be aware of, The Unicorn. Well, The Unicorn was a magic song because I was singing around the tables at a pancake house in Calgary called Phil's Pancake House, and the boys hadn't come out to visit me yet. And I was on my own, and I was singing as a singing host at Phil's Bank, going from table to table. And then I got a TV show for kids. And every day, five days a week, I was singing kids' songs. I always was looking, I was sick of Puff the Magic Dragon and Jimmy Crack Corn. And then I found Shel Silverstein, who'd written the poem, really, of the unicorn. And I kind of adapted the tune to my own liking. And I started singing that. And lo and behold, everybody really liked it. And as I just told you, whenever... Whenever that song was, whenever that album was coming up, the big pub album, 
deck of records. We couldn't believe we had a contract. The producer, in his wisdom, put that on there with Glenn Campbell, lead guitar player. And before we knew it, we were traveling in an old car from city to city. We were heading out of L.A. across the Mojave Desert to go play in Colorado, Aspen, Colorado, at another folk club. And on the, in the middle of the night, I'm the only one driving in those days, and I've got the radio turned on. They're all sleeping. And out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, this guy said... Well, I played this song this morning, and this is now the 15th time. My old Irish mother tells me I have to play it every hour. And it was the unicorn. And I couldn't believe it. We stopped the car in the middle of the road in the, in the Rocky Mountains at nighttime. Clear, clear sky, starlight. And I woke the boys up and said, Jesus, the bloody song's on the radio, guys. We got out of the car and we were dancing around. A big highway patrol guy pulled up behind us and said, Hey, I was looking at his belt buckle. I said, He's a big guy. And uh, he said, What the hell's going on? I said, Shh, listen, that's our song on the radio. So he stood and listened with us. And then at the end of it all, he opened up the boot of the police car and he tried to sell us a D28 Martin because he was a guitar player. <laughs> and he, and, and that, was, that was, I'll never forget that moment of hearing that song for the first time from Albuquerque, 500 megawatts of power, whatever they said, and it was beaming. And by the time we got to Detroit for the next folk club, um, it was already getting charted. So it was a magic time. I mean, I mean, let's face it, it was a simple little song. I have no idea if anybody could predict what kind of song was going to be a hit. Who would, who would figure it? Well, it's a great song for sure. And uh, let's move on to the next one. Highlighter story for, uh, about uh, Wasn't That a Party? Well, by the time we we were five, oh, ten years on the road as Irish Rovers, our record company in Toronto, all run by young guys, Attic Records, they said, you know what, we gotta we gotta youngify you guys, we gotta change direction. You guys can sing country music. Let's why don't we have the Irish Rovers put out a country music? Now I was the rebel. I'm a real dyed in the world traditional Irish musician. No, I'm not. But Jimmy. Big Jimmy in the band and my brother George, when they were at parties, that's all they ever sung. They sung rhythm and blues and rock and roll. They did all the Beatles songs at, at parties. So, so we did a we did a show in Chicago with Tom Paxton, who's a great American folk singer, well known. Wrote wrote lots of great songs, and the, on the last night we were booked for a week with him in Chicago. And at the last night, he said, well, I've been partying with the Rovers for the last week, and I'm tired out, and I wrote this song for them, and I hope they take it and make a big hit with it. And I've got that on a cassette. We recorded that show. And when we came in to do our big country album with Jack Richardson, famous Canadian producer, um, he, he, I let him hear that. Wasn't that a party? He says, Put that on. Got a rock and roll beat to it. Got a, 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 a raunchy saxophone. And Jimmy was the lead singer. So anyway, yeah, that was that was another surprise. And uh, we dropped the name The Irish Rovers for that album. But so many of our old Irish Rover fans complained so that the next album we went back again to be in The Irish Rovers. Now, uh, now I haven't been... The boys, the boys are... Tr well, there's nobody left in the band except my brother. My brother's the last survivor of the original band, and he has about eight guys on tour right now. They're like a Miami Irish show band. And uh, 
and he just keeps going. I get this. They're, in, they're into about their 52nd year right now. I'm glad to stay home and paint, James. I must tell you, uh, as somebody wrote somewhere, maybe it was the Bible, I don't know, there's a time for all things under heaven. And I've had my time of touring. Mind you, I still do a little. Wakes and weddings is now my forte. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows that the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. That is Leonard Cohen, and this is WVRN, The Wolverine. Jeez, you got some old albums there. Yeah, so I have a little bit of show and tell here, and I, I wanted you to just, uh, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you look at this? For the listeners, uh, we're, we're here talking with Will, uh, Will Miller from the Irish Rovers and from uh, the the World of Art. And uh, I've got the, uh, the first 1968 uh, pressing of the Unicorn. What does this bring to mind for you? The first thing I think about is Psychedelia, because the cover, some, it was probably done by some hippie in L.A., <laughs> because if you stay at it long enough, you get a, you get an Irish whiskey stone on. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing is, the original album cover was um, a, a different cover than this one. I've seen this cover once before, but I think you got a collector's item here. Whoever collects Irish Rover albums, I think so too. And I also brought with me uh, your solo album, uh, Make Believe Days. When did you make this? Oh my God, James, where in the hell did you get this? <laughs> my old friend from Stony Plain Records, Holger Peterson, great guy. I don't even know if Holger's still with us or not. And uh, I befriended him, and, and it was a time when, you know how all bands get restless, you wanted to do something on your own? I'd been writing a lot of songs. That's my old Irish setter on the front, God rest his lovely soul. He was such a nice dog. I was young in that picture. <laughs> I'm going to cry. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so I had written a whole bunch of songs uh, on my own. And uh, I decided, I don't know why, maybe ego, maybe something. I, I You know what? I haven't listened to this album, I swear, in 25 years. But uh, there's one song I do on there, I think, is The Dutchman. And that's my very favorite song. We was a friend of ours who wrote The Dutchman, and uh, I don't think at that point nobody else had recorded it. The idea of a personal legacy, does that appeal to you at all, or is it all about just living in the moment and living for today? You know what? I, at my age now, James, I have got to that point where it's almost like there is no tomorrow, and there might not be any yesterday, but I've got right now, and by God, I'm going to have a bit of fun. I... I really love my life here on the island. I've just been to Hawaii for nine days. And when I got back again, I said, you know what? I don't even like getting on airplanes anymore. I'm very, very happy. The, the, the extent of my travels might be taking the boat over a quadra or something. But I don't even like taking the ferry to Vancouver anymore. I am getting old. Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, highlight of your career so far. Let's end with that. Well, I th you have to say the highlight of the career, too. Selling my very first oil painting for a legitimate price, that was a high. But before that, standing on stage at Carnegie Hall to a sellout crowd 
and our song was on the charts and it was beyond my belief. One day we were playing in crummy folk clubs, the next day we're at the Sydney Opera House in Australia meeting beautiful girls and and the other one was Carnegie Hall and in my wildest dreams I could never have seen myself doing that. So when I look back on my life, that's one of the highlights. I suppose the best highlight of all is meeting my wife who's been with me. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary. She was a flight attendant for Canadian Pacific Airlines. And the minute I saw her, I says, I'm, I love this girl. I'm in love with her. I have a lot of songwriting and a lot of poetry to write to win that girl. But she's still with me. I don't know why. So that was a highlight of my life, too. There's so many. I mean, thank God I'm healthy. I, I walk up the mountain five times a week near my house, Zoo Elam, with my dogs. And I'm up there. And I all of a sudden have discovered that the most important thing in life is just being outdoors and enjoying the and what a place we live for that. So there's lots of highlights. I still every time I paint a new picture, that's another highlight. But if you're asking me about my life's highlights, I name three there. Selling my first painting, getting a hit record, and meeting Catherine. That's all those are highlights of your life. All right, this has been the songwriting episode of the Wolverine Variety Hour. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all my guests, Brian Pearson, Tony Horler, Rebecca Books, Terry Lawson, Hallam Highwater, Will Miller, our field reporter, Dwayne Anna McWan, and our in-house announcer, Al Demet. And don't forget to support Toonies for Tummies by going to GroceryFoundation.com. We don't need school kids going without lunches because that kind of thing breaks my heart so support toonies for tummies by going to grocerydoundation.com let's finish off with something a little silly we're gonna hand things over to our friend Dwayne Anna Mikwan one last time he's got a very special cartoon guest with him talk to you next time on the Wolverine yeah you're hanging out with Dwayne I caught I found this story today which uh, caught my attention because uh, my wife she likes ducks I don't know. She just likes ducks. I don't know. They're, they're, they're cute, though. When you look at ducks, they're cute. Anyways, this guy named Dylan Robert Pierce and his buddies, they ate at a McDonald's fast food restaurant uh, down in Ann Arbor, Michigan. These are young guys, too. Uh, they returned to the parking lot after they were done. They went to the drive-thru. They went through, and they saw four little ducklings, and they ran over them on purpose. Oh, he was arrested. They were arrested at a nearby gas station. And all right, I got one of my good friends on the line right now. I want to get his opinion on this story because this story uh, kind of got me angry, and I think it got him angry too. Donald Duck, are you there? I know you, you must have heard this story about this guy who ran over ducks on purpose at a McDonald's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. What are your thoughts on this? What should we do to this guy? I know that's what I'm saying too. What else can we do to avoid something like this uh, ever happening again? Okay, Donald. This Donald, Donald. This is a family show. Okay, buddy. Watch your language. You got one last thing that you want to say to my listeners? Okay, Donald. That's enough, man. I, I ain't gonna accept that language from you, buddy. So, uh, Donald Duck, thank you for your time, and I'll make sure that uh, somebody gets you some pants. Thanks for listening to the Wolverine. Take care and peace out.